knowing where the food is, is more important than having the food itself. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us to our guest today, Tony Haller. Coach Haller is a teacher and coach at Plainsville North High School and a legend and instigator of the sports performance world. Coach Haller is widely known for his speed training and feed the cats approach to training. And today we covered that, but we also kind of dove into the whole almost anti-culture movement of strength conditioning and kind of how we can just open our eyes and start to challenge things and not accept everything that we accept currently. And one of the, my, my, my favorite points of the podcast, he, he started talking about how when he was growing up, he started to challenge his teachers and that he thought challenging and just observing and paying attention to things that are happening throughout the world has led to him being a successful coach. And I think that has power in everybody's life. If we just pay attention more and we actually listen and we don't just accept what we're being taught, I think it just lead to so many more powerful things and so many more powerful ideas and just lead to people's souls being shown just a little bit more rather than the zombie look that we talked about, like a lot of our athletes are having currently because we're just force feeding them the same information and force feeding them down this cookie cutter path and making sure we're preparing the person for the path and not the path for the person. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. All right, well, Coach, it's awesome to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited for you to be here. Well, Austin, it seems like we just met in the last couple of days uh, after reading that article that you wrote for uh, Just Fly Sports, and uh, I, I can't wait to talk to you. Yeah, we just had like a 15-minute conversation that probably could have been this whole podcast if we had just kept rolling before we even hit record. Yes, it was absolutely fantastic. I'm fired up. Do you want to tell the listeners kind of a little bit about your background briefly of just who you are, why people should listen to you, and why you believe in what you believe in? Well, I don't know if anybody should listen to me or not, but, but I, I'm out there. I, I have opinions. And as we were talking about just a few minutes ago, I'm unfiltered and I say what I believe and I'm not afraid to apologize and say I'm wrong. Uh, I'm not afraid to be combative. Um, I think I'm defined by the fact that, I'm, uh, that I was the first son of my father who coached basketball for 47 years. And when you grow up the son of a, teacher and a coach. Um, I became the weirdest student athlete ever because instead of just playing for a coach or, or being in a teacher's class, I literally evaluated every teacher I ever had, every coach I ever had. And I wasn't real nice about the evaluation. Um, I, I would be very honest. I would, I would say, I love the coaches I love and I hated the coaches I hated. And so it's really been a process for me since I was, I think I started evaluating my teachers probably by the time I was nine years old, which means that was 52 years ago. And so I'm still that critical person and I'm not really being critical of those people, you know, and telling them that, but I think that my critical eye helped me to become a unique coach and a unique teacher myself. And so I think that, you know, the fact that I was not only like my dad's son, but I was kind of like his best friend as well. I was his wingman. He took me everywhere. And so I was always around coaches. Uh, all three of my mom's brothers played college football. Two of them were Hall of Fame coaches. So Thanksgiving at our house was different. You know, we, we weren't talking about, you know, the, you know, the weather, you know, we were talking about football and basketball constantly. So I think all that really defines me. I married a teacher. 
two, two of my sons are fantastic coaches. And um, I, I think, I think that's the background that people need to know. I love that. The, the, the one thing I kind of want to take apart there is a little bit of like the evaluation of coaches and teachers at a young age. And to me, it's, it's one having the, like, not maybe, maybe it is the balls to say something and like to think that way and to kind of break out of that middle line mold that we talked about earlier, but two, it's the, the ability to actually pay attention to what's happening. And this is something that in the past, probably three or four years, I've really noticed in myself is having the ability to take a step back and analyze the people that are leading in quotations, the people that are teaching and seeing if that's the right thing. And then questioning that and having that ability to be like, all right, he is my teacher, but maybe that's not right. Or maybe there's more there. I'm interested in where that kind of thought process has come from you because once I developed that thought process and it's a still constant development for me, it was a game changer in everything that I did because before it was the teacher told me X, I believe X fully because the teacher told me that and without any question. And there's just an eye opening moment for me to realize that's probably not always the case. I'm interested in where that thought process of paying attention and questioning things has came from, from you. You know, I don't really know, except for the fact that uh, my parents were opinionated people. And I, I think, I think, you know, we're, we're really at the mercy of, of where and when and who we were born to. Um, uh, having said that, we also have the opportunity to change course. Um, uh, and, and that's important as well. The, the thing that, that I still get, and I'm still this way, when I go to a clinic, I sit on the first row and I take notes and I, I love to go to clinics and, and listen to coaches I don't agree with. Um, I've written some, uh, some things that people think are disrespectful about experts before, but I believe um, that science is truly the belief in the ignorance of experts, that, that experts have been wrong forever. And so it was very eye-opening when I wrote a mean article it wasn't that mean, but it was very critical of Stuart McMillan from Altus. Um, I, I wrote something um, about another guy from Altus that I did not name in the article, but it's a very good article. Um, and I've also written a lot about Clyde Hart, the legend from Baylor, who I say nearly ruined high school track and field. And people went, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, Clyde Hart is the greatest coach of all times. How could you attack him like that? And I said, well, no, he was a great, fantastic college coach. But when high school coaches started having their 15-year-olds running 15 200s in practice, when they were not even close to the genetic ceiling as a sprinter, not only did they not get faster, but the true cats of the world, the, high, the fast switch athletes, quit track teams. So I say that Clyde Hart nearly ruined high school track and field. And so, you know, people think that is maybe mean-spirited, but I just think that it, it's, it's okay to debate, you know, in the field of ideas. Yeah, and I think that's taken the step back of questioning their ideas and who they are as a person, you know, like that, that's where I see we get a lot like wrong in the strength conditioning field a lot is somebody will question, like, why do you do that aspect? Why do you Olympic lift? And because they're questioning why you Olympic lift, the person that's being questioned is like, they're questioning who I am as a human. They're questioning who I am as a coach. Like, no, that's not what they're questioning. They're questioning your philosophies and they're trying to move everybody forward, you know, and that, that's kind of a the different approach of being able to detach yourself from your program and what's actually happening. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I always preface when I'm talking about Clyde Hart's crazy workouts that and Clyde Hart was a better man than I will ever be. 
I mean, he is universally respected and loved, something that I am not universally respected and loved because I am way too opinionated. And that's okay. I I still I I think that, um, you know, that whole thing that, you know, 10 percent of the world will love you no matter what, um, 80 percent really doesn't care. And then 10 percent will hate you no matter what. So, you know, you can't go through life trying to, you know, gain a fan club or something. So um, so I think it's important that that we disagree with ideas uh, without, you know, like totally trolling somebody. You know, like when I when I wrote the mean article about Stuart McMillan, um, you know, I, I said in the article that I would give one hundred dollars to have a beer with him, um, you know, meaning I respect the hell out of him. I just didn't respect the idea that he was bragging that in his training of Andre DeGrasse, they, they not once ran max speed in practice, you know, because I'm a max speed guy. And, and I've done a lot of work trying to get coaches away from the idea that we're going to run volume all the time and pretend to get faster. And I just thought Stu was kind of sticking a knife into what needed to be said to high school coaches. And so ironically, a couple of weeks later, I asked Stu to speak at, at the track football consortium. And he said, yes. And so I got to have that beer with him. So um, it was a good deal. That, that's awesome. I, I'm interested then in, because this is something that I find myself doing all the time is not, not the middle ground approach, but finding the extremes and then grabbing what I myself find is important, whether it's right or wrong. It's what I believe in um, taking stuff from you, taking stuff from other coaches and trying to blend it into who I am as a coach. I'm interested in how you do that as a coach when you bring on somebody like Stuart McMillan, where you don't agree with his philosophies, like what is your approach then? Is it like, how does that mend your program? How do you agree with him, disagree with him and go forward to try and move everything forward? Well, I think you gain understanding. Um, when, when Stuart McMillan, I thought he really overstated his case when he said not once did we ever do max speed sprinting in practice. Well, um, since then, I've heard him say that, no, we don't do max speed. We never do over 97%. I'm like, what the hell? 97% is max speed. You know I mean? <laughs> you know, like maybe we're not disagreeing as much as you pretend like we're disagreeing. Maybe we're doing things more similar than you think, but we never get there if we are defensive and, and, you know, we, we hate instead of love and all that kind of stuff. And I just think, um, we, we need to be really open-minded, but yet really opinionated at the same time, if that makes sense. That, um, that I say the extreme results never come from centrist thinking. Never. Um, I'm, I am, I'm politically a radical. Um, um, I, I believe that the centrist ideas politically are are bullshit. I'm a radical teaching wise. I believe, you know, standardized testing and all that stuff is bullshit. Um, I'm a radical training wise because I believe in a max speed, low volume approach, which is is not as radical as it used to be because the world is starting to catch on. But, but I, I believe that we should be bold or life's not very much fun. Yeah. And I think having that full on belief into something, and I think this is where people kind of that just stay in that middle ground. It's like they have 50% belief in something, 50% belief in nothing. And it turns into like a 0% belief program that the coach isn't completely sure of. And then like the athletes at the end of the day are going to be, well, the coach isn't sure of this. And this is kind of just like this, 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 and this, and it's, it's nothing they truly just fully sent on then it, it seems like you're just going to be running your, your athletes and maybe your students, or maybe it's your kids through kind of that circle of the, the central middle ground. That's, that's safe for everybody, but good for nobody. 
that's so, and, and I don't know if you've read the book Essentialism, but, but you need to read it. Um, it I loved it because it kind of described me. Um, but essentialism is the idea that we pick our priority um, and priority. We should work at not making priority plural. Um, that if we go, one of my favorite slides in my presentations is a slide of a, a guy leading a meeting and there's eight arrows going in all eight directions. And I say, this is our typical world where we take, like you were saying, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and we plug it all together and we end up, if, if you have eight vectors going in eight directions, the sum result is the dot in the middle. You go nowhere. But if I prioritize speed, which is extreme, if I prioritize speed above all else, we will get farther in speed. And what I love about that is that it takes nothing away from your weight room numbers. Matter of fact, people who have started to feed the cats have reported back to me that their weight room numbers increase with less time in the weight room. Because surprise, surprise, uh, weightlifting is CNS driven. And when we have a, uh, an improved CNS, we get better in the weight room. And then um, I always talk to football coaches, they spend 90% of their time on misdirection, you know, schemes and plays and all that stuff. Well, guess what? If your team is 20% faster, is your misdirection hurt? Hell no, your misdirection is amplified. So speed amplifies power and amplifies misdirection. And it goes back to the art of war where they say that the three things that wins, war, wins a war is speed, misdirection and power. Well, it's not equal amounts of the three, though, because speed improves the other two. If you spend too much time on the other two, it hurts speed has a negative effect. So the pursuit of infinite speed is extreme. But when we when we train the extreme, we train the entire range, which I think is. Yeah, I just totally believe it. Yeah. And it brings everything else up. And when you're watching and especially the NFL today, that like that speed has never to me. And maybe it's just because we have more analytics on it and they talk about it more. But to me, it seems like in today's game, yeah, you need speed to win. Yeah. The two fastest teams by by science last year just happened to be the Niners and the Chiefs. The two fastest teams. Um, the, that was the average top speed achieved by a ball carrier per game. And the number one and number two was, uh, was the two teams in the Super Bowl, and, and uh, the Ravens were number five. So, or actually tied for number four. So yeah, it's a speed game. I don't know, I'm always looking at linebackers. I'm, you know, linebackers now are as fast as running backs because running backs are half blockers, half runners, whereas linebackers, they are sprinters now. They look like power forwards on the, you know, they're long-legged, long-armed, and they can sprint. You know, the, the guy from Clemson ran 439 last year, weighing 238 pounds, 439 the 40. And you look back to, uh, you know, like back in the 80s, when guys wore those 20-pound shoulder pads and everything, um, my God, those guys were like, you know, like, you know, hairy-legged white guys that were real thick, you know, and, and it's not like that anymore. Those guys are absolute sprinters. So there's a reason why. Um, uh, it's seventy percent of all Division One football players who play, who play defensive back, wide receiver, and running back. Seventy percent ran high, high school track, and and there's a reason for that is because you will never get as fast on your own as you would in a competitive track season. So I'm really big on that track football combo stuff. Yeah, and 
this is something that, and you've covered in like probably a million times now in your career, but we, we've talked about the emphasis on speed and, and something that I'm interested in. Cause I still, and I know you've covered it a bunch of times, but I still see it wrong a ton of times and wrong in my, how I view it, but how to actually develop this speed that we're talking about, how to kind of, and I think the number one thing that I love about you is your, your emphasis and culture you've built around speed and how important that is for your team. But also like physically, like what is your approach to developing this speed that we're talking about? Well, I, I just put out last month. Um, I'm doing this. I'm doing this very ambitious. Um, it will be over 20 courses that will lead to a feed the cat certification. Um, there may be a separate certification in football and in track, but my first two courses was the solo speed workout and X factor, which pretty much sums up all my off season stuff. Um, and, uh, um, Basically, the key idea is the definition of sprinting. You know, sprinting is sprinting as often as you can, as fast as you can, staying as fresh as you can. That's the definition of sprinting. And so um, this secondary definition is if you're not spiked up, you're not being timed, times are not being recorded, they're not being ranked, and they're not being published then it's not sprinting. So much of what I see as sprint training is really just running. Running and we, my teams, when I was 40, I flipped the switch and went from old school to crazy guy. And, you know, that was 21 years ago. And I told people, we gave up running in track practice. We don't run anymore. And people say, well, what? Yeah, no, we don't run. We only sprint. And sprinting is spiked up, timed, recorded, ranked, and published. And so you could say, well, how many times do you sprint? Well, we sprint three times a week. And each time we do a sprint workout, we do about three sprints. And they're always short, either 40s or 10 meter flies. And then on the days that we don't sprint, and this is where, I mean, I love uh, Charlie Francis. And we agree, I think on probably 90% of all stuff. And I never read anything about Charlie until I'd already discovered all my shit. So we kind of came upon, you know, our truth on different continents, you know, kind of like, you know, like we, we both evolved, but we evolved in different places to the same type of creature. Now, the difference between me and Charlie is he believed in tempo running on off sprint days. They would sprint three times a week, but they did tempo running. And he felt like that was a good regeneration day and we don't run. So we don't do tempo runs. My kids have never run a lap in practice. They've never run more than 200 meters in practice. And, and that includes the 400 meter guys. That's all sprinters. And so what we do on those off days is what we call what I coined 14 years ago as X factor. So if you ever hear about X factor, I didn't get a copyright on it or anything, but that was my creation. And X factor is basically exercises of five seconds or less that I have a reasonable hunch may improve speed. And you've, probably seen them all before. And that includes bounding and plyos, all, all low dose, you know, uh, body strength stuff. Um, uh, we do hip mobility like crazy wickets. So it's non-sprint things that we do. And the first question that really smart people ask is now wait, the way you describe it, those things are high CNS. So yes, if we go speed on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, X factor, Tuesday, Thursday, you're high CNS five days a week. Um, I'm like, Yes, but we are extreme in our dosage. Our dosage is so minimal that our today's workout will never interfere with tomorrow's workout ever. And so by taking that very low dose, 
um, I believe it's Scholes that said that low doses stimulate, moderate doses inhibit, and large doses kill. Now, he was talking about medicines, but I believe the training is the same way. We want that stimulating workout, not that inhibiting workout. And that's kind of getting to what you were talking about. The typical coach is still working guys till they're tired. And I believe tired is the enemy, not the goal. And, and when you accept that, then you start to feed the cats and guys get faster and more powerful. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that you, you mentioned that I kind of want to take it down. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit of just my out there thinking, but the, the, the full thought process of that high, low approach and how you are doing high in quotations exercises on each day, but with a low amplitude. And to me, it's like, I feel like we may as a field have gotten way too far into that, like high, low approach of like that, that athlete, like if we want to stimulate that athlete to be a high CNS athlete, like the, the, the more high CNS activities that we can do at a lower dose and just train them to be that twitchy athlete, the cat that you talk about, to me, that's the better. And if you think about like our evolutionary bias, it's like, if we're getting chased by a tiger on Monday, like, does that mean we're not going to get chased by a tiger on Tuesday and we just have to go full low? And I get like, it's a little bit different situation, but to me, like the human body is capable of way more of what we really talk about and what we really like put out in scientific studies that really don't, I feel like push the athlete to their full limit. I totally agree. And you know, what's really weird is that, I mean, I, I've been obsessed in the last week. I don't know if you saw it, uh, but there was a, a YouTube of Nebraska um, strength training from 35 years ago. And it is fascinating because I mean, they're talking about, you know, the problem that most coaches see is they do too much endurance work. They, they believe in an aerobic base. Um, they don't realize that, um, that anything you do for more than they said, six seconds, I always say five, you, you have extreme power, uh, uh, depression that if you want extreme power and speed, you can't do stuff for more than five or six seconds. And we're training that performance stuff in practice, which by the way, is another thing in feed the cats is I don't think I ever performed in practice ever as an athlete, middle school, high school, college practice was hard and tiring and was required to get to play the games. Um, but I never performed where I believe we need to turn athletes into daily performers. I mean, we will time sprints in the off seasons on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then we'll measure six bounds from standing start on Tuesday and Thursday. All right. You know, we'll, we're always record rank published. We're always uh, competing against former numbers, trying to uh, PR and things. And, and that performance that, you know, and, oh, don't even get me started about periodization where somehow we're supposed to take the first third of the season and and um, and do a foundational thing like, hey, we don't want to be too good too early. Bullshit. We, we want to be a performer on day one. And if if you're like that, you're not going to do one of those 16 times 110 conditioning tests on day one. You're going you're going to test their 40 yard dash speed or their 10 meter fly speed because you want to know if they're performance ready on day one, not you know, some, you know, crazy endurance test that has nothing to do with football. So, um, so yeah, I really believe we've gotten away from that, but I'm telling you, there is a movement. There's a movement out there of like-minded people like me and you, um, Matt Gildersleeve, uh, well, Mike Tucker from Villanova, he gave me this quote by Matt Gildersleeve, who is at, uh, at Buffalo. And he said, you know, 10 years ago, Matt said, 10 years ago is all lift, lift, lift. 20 years from now, we'll have to remind the younger generation that we need to be in the weight room some. 
<laughs> and I thought, oh man. So I wrote that down and got a hold of Matt right away. And uh, we're going to be good friends from now on. But uh, it, we have a movement. Uh, it's still, it's not mainstream yet, but we have a movement that is going to prioritize speed. We're not going to leave the weight room. I mean, weight room is always going to be a part of football, but there is a movement to prioritize speed above all things. And the great thing is, is that by doing that, there is no cost because small doses of speed will actually potentiate everything else you do. Yeah. And that's, you talked about never leaving the weight room. This is something that frustrates me a little bit because that is like, I, I talk about movement. I talk about speed. I talk about the competition aspect side of football so much. And everybody like brings it back to, yeah, but they still have to lift weights. I'm like, yes, like we already know they have to lift weights like that. That is the part that every single, like to me, there's not a college that is not lifting enough weights in my opinion. Like everybody right. is doing that. Everybody has that part. Like I'm talking about this other aspect of things because nobody is doing that. They're like, we have athletes that come into us that like, have no movement abilities at all. They can squat 500 pounds and can't roll, you know, like they can't do simple things with their body. And to tell me that like, I need to talk more about lifting and like, every, everybody knows about the lifting aspect of this. Like all these kids are coming in ready to lift the barbell. None of them are coming in really ready to move sprints and compete in their sport. That's absolutely true. And, and there's a reason for that. I mean, like at Plainfield North high school, uh, I, I'm right outside of Chicago where school like 2,500. Um, and the biggest sign in our weight room is that champions are born in the weight room. And, and it is absolutely horseshit. It's a hundred percent wrong. Um, but the people who put that sign up there, you have to remember what type of a guy he was in high school. Remember we're all products of our, of the time we were born, you know, where we were born, parents, coaches, blah, blah, blah. And so it's not their fault that they're, they're, they're a meathead. It's just, not their fault, but there, there are people in high school that, that had speed and, and those guys tended to run track and, you know, were fast and wide receivers and things like that. But then there was this belief by coaches that somehow speed was a God given trait and they're, and they're correct in a way, because I always say speed grows like a tree. So you got to plant it early and water it often. It's really, it's kind of a, an ironic statement to say speed grows slow. It grows so slow that people give up on it. You know, like, man, we've been working on speed. Of course, all they're doing is running. They're not, they're not really sprinting or spiked up or timing, but, but speed grows so slow that people give up on it. And slow people hate to work on speed. They hate to run, but they found the weight room to be a, a haven for them. They saw one of the great things about lifting is it'll, strength numbers grow fast. I mean, you, you, if you'll work for two weeks, you will be happy with your results. And, and then of course our weight room also has mirrors all the way around it. I wonder why that is. I mean, I'm sorry, but weightlifting is probably 60% bodybuilding and you know, nobody really, no, no, this is functional training. And then they go pose for a picture somewhere. So, so the weight room gave these grinders um, uh, a lot of satisfaction. And they actually grew to hate those fast guys that didn't work as hard as they did. You know, some of a bitch wild wide receiver scores all the touchdowns and he didn't lift one time back in June, you know? And, and so they developed this mentality of being a grinder. They're all good people. They, they came early, stayed late. They loved their coach. They were patriotic. They love football. I mean, all that stuff. And so we just, 
we have this, uh, this culture in football, especially of being weight room first or weight room only. And coach, you just described me for the last five minutes. Like, I mean, that, that, that was my college career. That was, and it, and it was like that I was rewarded for it. You know, it, it was quick. It was easy. And I like, I literally like every day I thought I was the grinder. Like I thought I was the dude, like I worked harder than everybody. I did this. And the, the, like you would get to game day and you would, again, you would look at that wide receiver that skipped that Tuesday lift and he would just make a corner look stupid and score a touchdown and win you the game. And you're like, well, shit, like, <laughs> like what, what are we doing here? That's right. Speed envy, you know, like, like almost every weight room guy has speed envy. And if you look at like, let's, let's say there's a high school that has 14 coaches, you know, like a big high school. And, and you tell me how many of those 14 guys were cats in high school and how many of those guys were come early, stay late, love their coach, patriotic, uh, hard workers in the weight room, never missed a session. Almost, I, I bet you it's 90% or more of the football coach culture or SNC culture who would definitely, I mean, the weight room was their favorite place in the world. And, and, not, and to make it worse, they have this anti-cat nature about them. Like that lazy son. They don't realize that cats sleep 20 hours a day. That's one of the reasons why they're so damn fast, you know? So, and, and then of course I need to throw in here. Um, should you train, you know, like a thick kid the same way you train a cat? That's absolutely, absolutely. I, my favorite topic in the last couple of years has been big cats. I mean, there's a reason why when they invite like the top 20 offensive tackles to the combine, uh, they're all great players. Uh, they're all within an inch of six, five. They're all within 15 pounds of 312. Um, so th they're, they're very common people. But who goes in the first round? The fastest guys. In a position where they play almost like a sumo type of position where their steps are usually backwards. The ability to run the 40-yard dash super fast tells NFL teams that they're, first of all, going to age well because slow age is really bad. I mean, slow is – if you're a slow guy in the NFL <laughs> – you're not going to have a long career, but you know, like uh, Whitworth uh, for, for the Rams, I think he's 39 years old and still starting. You know, there's a reason for that. You know, I mean, at 238 pounds or 338 pounds, he ran 515 in the 40 and he was a, a state champion in tennis in high school. I mean, guys that can move, that is the key performance indicator. And what is the extreme measure of movement? Top speed. Yeah. And that's just the, the reward for the big cats is something that I have absolutely ate up recently because it's you, you, in, a, in my setting, I, I have these college kids that this kid is, is a massive, like massive dude in the weight room, huge and has loved it. And the biggest challenge as a coach is breaking that mindset of this is what we value in our program to this is what we value. And once you get that guy that has the huge output abilities in the weight room, to get the love the field and get the get that movement aspect of it it's so cool to see the transition of who they are as an athlete and what they are starting to value as an athlete yeah i mean you think about you know how popular it is even to this day of calling uh, offensive linemen hogs you know i you know i i just totally disagree if i had a, a, a son that was you know 280 pounder in high school i wouldn't mind being called a hog you know that's not a term of endearment i don't care what they call the Washington Redskins back in the seventies. But, you know, I want them to be treated like an athlete. 
like a big cat. And one of the things in the feed the cats, like our speed days, uh, we train speed solo and it's, we, we do it obviously because it's easier to time that way. But what I found is it's brilliant because kids never get beat. Losing steals a little dopamine from you. I mean, it, it's losing's no good for anybody. I mean, yes, of course we have to lose and stuff, but when we're training athletes, we would much rather have that big fat kid run a PR and not get beat by anybody and celebrate his improvement. And so much of that big kid's time in his career has been being laughed at during conditioning. Uh, don't even get me started on that. Why in the world would we have every single athlete do the same conditioning at the end of practice? It is mind blowing that, that for the cat, they are running at, you know, at 60% speed and cruising. And for that big kid, he is highly anaerobic. That's why the big kids die. And that's why 90% of all football deaths happen during condition. It, it's, it's crazy, but people are still doing it. And I, I kind of want to, I, I want to dive in a little bit and we talked about it a little bit before the podcast, but kind of taking this feed the cats approach now to your teaching and how you are doing this in your classroom, because as much as, and this is the Oakham strength podcast and maybe so like we talk about strength and we talk about the sports specific part of it, but I think it relays and I think training is just a micro view of what's actually happening in the world. And if we can start to create the change kind of in our teaching world and in the outside world to where we don't have these zombies walking around that were force fed these facts and force fed what to learn. And now they hate learning. And I think that's a big part of it too, is you, you get an athlete that comes in that hates exploration, hates creativity and hates learning because it's never been valued and it's been force fed down their throats the entire time. And I, I think it's super cool that you've talked about this now in the, the teaching world, because I feel like, that leads to much greater growth at the end of the day. For sure it does. There's, there's, you know, I, I, I can't accept the opposite to my argument that kids are good at what they like and they're obsessed with what they love. Um, the only quote I had on my teacher's desk, I'm retired now for the last year, thank God, with the virtual learning stuff going on. But anyway, the one quote was the Yeats quote that, that education is not the filling of a pail it's the lighting of a fire. And, I, I believe that's the way I run my track program because track is kind of a, you know, I coach orphans, you know, like parents don't even come to track meets track sucks in like 90% of all schools. Um, and, and so I really had to work hard at making track as good as it could be. And I've taken the same idea to my chemistry class because uh, another quote I love is if your class was not mandatory, would the kids still come? And I believe as a principal that should be like painted on the far wall of every classroom and teachers typically don't care because they're under so much stress to teach the official curriculum, the objectives for that, those standardized tests that are bullshit and all that stuff that, that the worst teachers are the teachers following the rules. The worst teachers are the teachers that are trying to be the Boy Scout and Girl Scout of their profession. Whereas uh, uh, a rebel like me, we, we would we would get off topic um, and, and my kids would actually enjoy getting off topic as much as you know, probably much more so than talking about um, electronic configurations or something. Um, but we had to keep it entertaining. Um, we blew stuff up constantly. Um, I did. 
I, I did stuff that was, you know, definitely endangered my life. Um, but I kept the kids way back, you know, and, um, we did labs constantly. We, uh, and with the labs, I would get desk work done. I, I would tell them, Hey guys, you got to figure out where stuff is. You got to communicate back there. I was not like one of these teachers that, Oh, okay. When you measure it, you do this and that, you know, I made them build their own house, which is something that I think is a hugely important concept from chop, uh, chop wood, carry water. And, uh, um, yeah, we were talking about that before our podcast, and it's it's probably my favorite quote. And the the, the point that I want to I want to ask you about or just talk about there is a little bit of you're doing desk work during that lab period, and instead of holding that kid's hand, they have to do the frustration of figuring that out, and maybe the frustration of failing, maybe the frustration of like oh, he's not getting my hand for the first time in my life. And this is something I see a lot in my training sessions is like the, one of the coaching advice, like biggest things I say is like, figure it out or like you yeah. guys set it up or you guys do it. And the frustration level that they have initially is so much higher than if you had just held their hands and got, walked them through it. But the, the growth that they have from that to me is so worth it. For sure. And I, um, I would probably, you know, teachers or administrators would be appalled. Like what you're doing desk work. Well, I had articles to write and stuff, you know, I'm, I'm this feed the cats guy, you know? So I, but my point being is I love my chemistry class because I, I didn't make it miserable for me. And I think that so many teachers are miserable. And if you're a miserable teacher, you're not going to have happy students. And I watched my 15 year olds grow um, by giving them the freedom. You know, I, I say it's kind of like I'm going to give you the keys to the car. Now, if you wreck the car, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> yeah. But 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 we're going to learn from it. You know, and, and let, let me just say, I've wrecked many cars in my life and, and I'm glad I had the opportunity to drive, you know, instead of to be driven, you know, I hear coaches are always like, Oh, I wish, I wish we were more drive in my kids. And I'm, I'm like, shit, you've driven them the whole time. How, how are they going to be taught to drive when they've been driven? And, you know, whether you're a parent, uh, coach, teacher, all these things, you know, I, I think you've really got to, to take, you know, we want to, I saw a tweet yesterday. Uh, we want to prepare people for the path. We do not want to prepare the path for the person. And I think that in parenting and coaching and teaching, we are constantly preparing the path. And that leads to centrist people who are obedient and, they're probably good rule followers. Uh, but you know, we should be telling them to get off the path. You know, like you don't want to be normal. I mean, normal is not, I don't think the normal Americans a real, you know, uplifting person. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can coach, I can rant about that all day, all of those points, because I mean, it's, it's, it's literally what we see like constantly. And that like my favorite, favorite growth of, of working with athletes is finally getting them to realize that. And it's just, you, you walk in with these kids that just had high school all day or college all day. And it's literally like four zombies. And then I talked about this in a post I wrote the other day. It was like, you have four zombies just walking into your training session. And the first thing I tell them to do, or first thing I allow them to do is like break a rule, like a society rule, do something that's not normal, do something that's weird. And finally you get to see their personality come out. And finally you get to see who they are. And you're like, Oh my God, like they have to do eight hours of their day pretending to be this boy scout or pretending to be this like, centrist person that doesn't do anything outside the bubble and finally get, they get to be who they want to be. 
It's exactly right. And, you know, I, I've talked a lot about, I have four kids of my own and, and when you have four kids and my wife and I were both teachers and we didn't have any money at all. And, uh, and, and so we were kind of forced to raise our kids like free range kids, you know, like they would walk places and do stuff and, and all that stuff made them, I think, stronger adults. Um, all four of them are very opinionated. Um, they, they're not afraid to argue. They're not afraid to express, uh, opinions that are not the same as everybody else. And I think, man, we should be doing that with everybody. Yeah. And just having, and I think coach, just having more people like you out there lighting the fire, like you mentioned to, to be all right with that thing. And that, that was the biggest thing is like, this podcast has helped me so much of talking to people like you because now it's, and I, I don't know if you should need that. And that, that, that's the part I struggle with too. It's like, you shouldn't need somebody else to do it first. But for me, it helped me a ton of like, all right, th- this is a thing. Like being not normal is a thing. Like, that's all right. Like you feeling that is all right. You wanting to do that is all right. And that's just, um, I want to thank you for that. And I just like something I think we need to continue to push forward is continue to challenge those things and not be normal. Well, that after that, reading your Just Fly article that I read twice, um, um, I don't think you need a lot of encouragement. I, I, I think, I think that you are already, uh, you know, driving your car outside the lines and, and figuring stuff out. And that's, that's awesome. I mean, for a guy, you're, you're really young, aren't you? Uh, 24, 24. That's yeah. Yeah. I got 37 years on you. So, um, <laughs> so who knows what you're going to be by the time you're my age. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to drive ourselves back into the line by that point. Yeah. There you go. It's, hey, you know, it is a lot safer between the lines. Safe it's really not fun, is. though. You already said that, right? Yeah. It, it's not as much fun. All right. Before, before we head out, can we, uh, let's go to the rapid fire rounds because I'm interested in hearing kind of your answers to these questions. And the, the, the first one is kind of your favorite book or books. And you mentioned Chop Wood Carry Water of that kind of allow you to get into the thought processes that you have currently? Well, if I was like, uh, three books that, that I would suggest to a young guy like you that, you know, would impact your, your stuff would be, you know, chop wood, carry water, which you're already signing off your emails with chop wood. So you already got that. Essentialism is, is an amazing book. You know, basically it's an entire book, a quick read about priorities and going further in things that matter. And then, um, and then the third thing, after seeing how well you write at the age of 24, is read uh, Stephen King's book on writing. Um, I read on writing before I ever wrote my first article. And reading that book made me want to write a book. And I had no background. I've, I've read a thousand books in my life. And that's my only training as a writer is that if I see a sentence that I can recognize when a sentence is awkward. And I only recognize that because I read so much. So uh, anyway, it's a, some Stephen King people think that uh, this may be the best book he's ever written. You know, it has nothing to do with monsters or nothing like that. But uh, 98% of my reading is, is, is not, you know, like sports or self-help or anything like that. Um, uh, like presently I'm reading, don't judge or anything. Um, I'm reading the Outlander series. Uh, time travel uh, by a woman from 1945 back to the Highlands in Scotland in 1745. And I've read like 4,000 page books already in the series. There's nine books. It's amazing. I'm a huge lover of historical fiction and time travel. Um, 
Stephen King's book, 112263. It was just absolutely brilliant. I just loved it. And I was also going to mention there's three books I've read twice. I've read Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett, The Stand by Stephen King, and The Gold Coast by Nelson DeMille. And uh, yeah, for me to read a book twice, obviously I love them and stuff. So, but I, I'm a huge reader and I could probably talk for two hours about books. No, I'm, I'm the same way. And that's why I asked that question is because I geek out about books. Like I'm, I was the biggest Harry Potter fan ever, like waited midnight in line for that seventh book. So I've the, never read, I've never read Harry Potter. Oh, really? Yeah. I was, I was a geek. I was a major, major geek. That was before I got into any sorts or anything. My first passion was reading and writing and like geeking out about that stuff. So when you talk about your guilty pleasures of reading, like I'm there with you. <laughs> and then the next question is, I, I guess that, and this is, I really like talking to people and asking people like you this question because it brings on non-centralist people. And that's what I try to avoid and try to find. But I guess that you think we should have on the podcast that will bring us into some of these rabbit holes and challenge the world. The, uh, uh, well, there's, there's so many because the greatest thing about our track football consortium stuff is that uh, I have been hooked up now with, you know, people like Stuart McMillan and Ken Clark and Jonas Dodu. And I mean, my business partner is Chris Corpus. And if, if you've never looked into Chris Corpus, he is the most brilliant pre person I've ever known. Um, just an absolute mind blowing. I mean, several of the Chicago bears are working out with him once a week in season. Um, he was this director of speed development for Chicago Cubs. Um, he's just a history teacher, you know, just a high school teacher like me that, um, I mean, he's, but he's an international sprint guru. Um, a guy that's become a good friend of mine would be great on the podcast. And you'd love him is uh, Brian Kula. I read about Christian McCaffrey's new trainer and their, and his new direction a year ago. Uh, when they, um, uh, when they stopped doing heavy lift work to stop the, the lift focus. And so he went back to his track coach who was Brian Kula who now trains him and has for the last couple of years. And they trade with nothing but sprinting and weight room, but sprinting of five seconds or less, no endurance work whatsoever, zero. And the lifting was accessory. It was not, it was not priority. And Brian Kula, and of course, you know, McCaffrey had like one of the greatest years of all times last, last year playing with the backup quarterback. Um, so just an outstanding, um, uh, guy and um, he would be really good as well. Boom. I, I love it. There's two, two that I'm for sure going to check out. Then the, the next question, and you, you talked about being retired now, but what's kind of next for you? What's kind of the next big step? You talked about that, that lecture series that you want to put out, but what's kind of the next big thing you're looking forward to accomplishing? Well, I mean, I'm always going to have like the next article in my head. Um, I thought about writing a book, but but I, I think there's things that I can make more money doing. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I've never had money in my life. Uh, went bankrupt in 2004. So, uh, um, so yeah, it, it's nice to be retired and making a little extra money on the side, but yeah, that, that uh, certification series in feed the cats. Um, so far I have five uh, courses published and there's 7.5 hours of content and I'm about to record my sprint based football uh, course, which uh, it may be three hours long. Um, uh, and, and then I'll also get uh, a couple other guys. Um, I'm hoping to get Dan Casey, a good friend of mine. Um, to, based. Uh, I had him on a podcast earlier. Oh, you did? Yep. Uh, Dan, Dan called me three years ago when he read 
uh, new ideas for old school football coaches. And, and he is, he and I have been friends ever since, um, a totally sprint based football guy. Um, we've had him at TFC twice. Um, just brilliant, brilliant person. So, um, and he would be a, I was going to say he'd be a great guy to have on the podcast, but he's already been on. We beat you one. Beat you to that one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, uh, uh, and then of course we do the track football consortium, which this year is going to be forced to virtual. We we did three last year. We did Chicago, St. Louis, and Dallas, and it was very well received at all three. And this year, uh, we're not officially. saying this until October 2nd, but anybody that hears it right now, the plan is that, you know, in honor of 2020 to have 20 speakers, 20 presentations over 20 days. And, uh, the, the presentations will be recorded and then we'll follow up with a zoom interview with questions with that guy. Um, later, you know, like every night we're going to have somebody else, you know, so 20 guys, I think it's going to be a, you know, a really good deal. And, if you've ever done something like that, that kind of blocks out the sun because, you know, you want it to be really, really good. And it is really unique because it brings people like you and people like high school football coaches and track coaches together. So they're not in that echo chamber of the same ideas. You know, if a football coach goes to a football clinic, they're mainly drinking beer. Um, <laughs> and, and then, you know, and then, you know, waking up with a hangover and going and listening to uh, somebody talk about, you know, four vertical, you know, for an hour or something like that. But they're not ever hearing anybody uh, talk about off-season training. Um, so, hell, they just keep off-season training the way they were trained as a coach, you know, or trained when they are in high school, which was barbaric and dumb. So, yeah, I'd say the TFC and, and, and my certification stuff is, is the stuff that keeps me busy. I like that. And coach, I'm going to, I'm going to throw out, you, you talked about how you want to curve balls, but th- I think this might be my first legit curveball of the podcast, but I, I, I want to ask about your, your writing process. Cause I, I, I've read a couple of your things and I, I love your writing. Like you, you're writing the way you, you kind of tell a story while also getting the facts. And it's not just like, there's some super boring writing out there Like you read and you're like, Oh man, this is not good. And like when you read your writing, you're telling a story while also getting your facts. So I'm interested in kind of what your writing process is, how you come up with your ideas, how you kind of tell the story throughout it and then how to make it fit everything that you want to make it fit. You know, I, I really don't, I, I don't know how to answer that. I, I, I will, first of all, tell you, not only did I read your article twice, your article was the first article I've read to the end in probably <laughs> several months <laughs> because I mean, People that write for a living, I mean, I, they don't interest me enough that I can even get to the end of the article sometimes, you know, it's like, um, so you really have to think in terms of how, how am I going to keep this interesting enough um, that people are going to read it all the way to the end. And my early writing, I, I was very poor at this. Um, Stephen King says in his book on writing that he will have like a manuscript of 1600 words and then he will lock it in a drawer uh, for a couple of months and let it, let it marinate. And then he'll pull it back out and try to get it down to a thousand pages. And, and, you know, and he's able to keep a thousand pages interesting. Well, <laughs> I've had several articles that were, like 7,000 words. And, and it's because I have a lot to say and by God, it was my article, you know, but, 
but if you really want it read all the way through, you have to realize that not many people are going to spend 30 minutes reading an article, you know? So I really worked at, at, at keeping them readable. I never write with a deadline. I've never been employed. I, I think I was paid one time, you know, <laughs> by stack magazine, hundred bucks or stack online, hundred bucks to write an article. That's the only time I've ever been paid. And so, so I don't write until I'm ready. And, and when I'm ready, it seems almost right itself. It like pours out of me, you know, it was like, I'm not even the person writing. It just, it just pours out. You know, I used to say that I'm not comparing myself to Bob Dylan, but uh, that Dylan could not have been smart enough to write the stuff that he wrote back in the sixties that somehow he was an empty vessel that, that stuff just poured out of him. It, it, who knows where in the hell it came from, but he was, he was not that smart of a guy, you know? And, and so what I'm saying is I'm not that smart of a guy either, but when I'm ready to write, you know, some type of magic happens where, where it's all I can think about and I get excited. And, but then when it's over, it's like, I don't want to fucking write for another month, you know, or until, until I get the urge again. So, um, so yeah, I just sit at my computer and, and stream of consciousness. And then I go back, I'll reread it backwards. I'll read, you know, like one paragraph and say, can I clean up these sentences? And, uh, you know, make, can this sentence be said better or, you know, I'll go. And anytime I'm, I think, okay, I'm done. I don't ever publish it. I make it wait one more day and then I reread it again. And I try to be somebody I'm not, you know, like, okay, what if I'm Austin Yoakum, you know, like, what would I think of this article? And so I pretend to be you and read through it. And usually there's certain things that I change around when I do that. Gotcha. Oh man, you give me some chills there. That, that's I, I fired up about it because that's that's what I. I the, you talk about the like the, the streaming in, and that that's something that I like. That whole article that I wrote was all just streams of information that I I would literally and I do this pretty much every morning. Is uh, I meditate and then I'll drink a bunch of coffee and just walk and try <laughs> to try to empty the emails in my head, like empty all the emails in my head open up my brain for hopefully something for like that to fall in something like that falls in. I just typed in my phone real quick. Like I don't think about it. I'm like, all right, brains rolling. Something's thinking here, type it up, save it for later. Hopefully it turns into something. I mean, I have so many notes in there that are just like, that doesn't really make any sense. Like it just felt good in the moment, but that did not make any sense. And that whole article is just strings of those ideas that had popped up into my head that I just wrote down real quick. And at the end of the day, like tried to make it into something. But like you said, like, you, you can't really force it. It's, it's, to me, it's like not even my thoughts. It's like something, somebody's giving me these thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. So you understand what I'm talking about, how, how, you know, and there's no way that these writers are really thinking what they're writing. You know, it's like, you know, some people have a gift of, of that flow or something, by the way, what kind of coffee you drink? Um, my buddy, my buddy owns a, or just started up a cold brew coffee. So it's, it's, it's busy cold brew. Yeah, I, I've uh, uh, I've found that my brain works a lot better with Bulletproof. Have you ever tried Bulletproof? I have not. Okay, so I, I just drink, you know, like Pete's, Major Dickinson, you know, like a good bold coffee. But then I put uh, um, ghee into it, which is like clarified butter. Okay. And, and high octane MCT oil um, called Bulletproof. And so it sounds like a buttery, oily coffee does not sound good. But it, um, the people, if you look it up, the people who, um, do bulletproof, um, yeah, they, they, uh, 
they go to different places. It, it's like, uh, it's like caught, you know, like the creative juices really flow. And I, I don't think there are any writers that are not caffeinated. Yeah. Or, or finding an altered state of consciousness somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, coach, uh, this, this was awesome. I, and I, I want to thank you for doing the podcast. I, I leave some, and I don't I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast recording, but I, honestly, like I leave some podcasts like drained and it was like, all right, that, like we talked about some good stuff and got some good material, but there's, there's very few times I leave podcasts like, like this one where I, I like, I'm energized about life and just things that we talked about, like in a flow state almost. Yeah. Flow is a good thing. Yeah. So coach, thank, thanks for being on. This was awesome. Thank you, Austin. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.